Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right, we're in a series called Relationship Killers. We're looking at those activities, those behaviors, those mindsets that have an inordinate amount of power to destroy relationships, to hurt people that we're in relationship with, to destroy our own lives, right? We're taking a look at those kinds of things because when I look back at my life, my biggest regrets over everything else has not been when I messed up the trim on my window. It was, it was that relational issue that I messed up or that someone else hurt me over. And so we want to pay attention to these kinds of things. Ask what does God want us to do in these areas. Now, this weekend we're in part two on the topic of lust. Lust and sexuality. We talked about this last week as well. And we said that lust is seeking to satisfy God-given desires in ungodly ways. God-given desires in ungodly ways. So we can try to fill these desires that God has actually given us for we can we can seek to like fulfill things like peace and dealing with anxiety and wanting to have peace. We can seek to fulfill that by like going to the buffet and saying, man, I really just want to eat all of it. I just, I want the whole package of Chips Ahoy cookies right now. That's how I have this issue, this desire, this longing for peace, and I'm going to seek to satisfy it in an ungodly way. So there might be that desire for connection with someone, and, and there's this new guy in accounting, and so it's just like, I feel like feel this gravity to, to flirt with this person at work, and so we might we might be tempted to satisfy this God-given desire in an ungodly way. Now, lust can be over anything. It's interesting, if you look on Pinterest, there's a certain pin, well, they'll call it food porn, or like architecture porn, like stamp porn, like take whatever you want, because there are these things that just activate something in our brain, right, where we lust over these things. But most of the time, it has to do with our sexuality. What we talked about last week is that God created our sexuality as a good thing. When I was growing up, church kind of like didn't talk about it. It was like sexuality was like bad. You should just never have those thoughts, those thought processes ever. But God's word, when you look at it, says, no, he's created this thing to be this powerful bonding force between one man, one woman, and the, and the confines of a New Testament marriage. It's this beautiful thing that has so much power. It has so much power, it's like a, like a fire in your home. If it's in the fireplace, it can be constructive. It can bring warmth. It can bond everyone together. Take it out of the fireplace. It's going to burn the house down, right? It is a particularly powerful thing. Now, as we talk about lust and sex this weekend, as we're going to hop into a passage, I want to dis- try to dispel a myth that sometimes our culture, and maybe you think this way too, um, just accepts to be true. And it's this idea that sex, it's only physical. It's only physical. In other words, as long as no one gets pregnant, as long as no one gets an STD, it doesn't really matter. It's just physical. It's like it's like ping pong or like, like flag football. It's a physical activity. As long as everyone's consenting and no one gets hurt, uh, we're just having a good time. When it's over, it's over. It's just a physical thing. The thing is, I think you know intuitively that the truth is this, that sex is not just a physical thing. And here's my point in case, in, in case you like leave early. If you treat sex like it's just a physical thing, you're going to hurt yourself at a deep, deep level. And you'll eventually hurt your marriage partner as well. 
And so to, to bring this front and center, I want to ask a few questions, um, and, and maybe it can get everyone in agreement on this. Regardless of where you're at in your spiritual journey in this t- conversation, this is such a, a big deal. I want to ask some questions, but I, at the same time, this is one of those things that I like thought about cutting out of my message. I don't know that I have great answers to all of these sorts of questions as well. Uh, I don't have an agenda in asking any of these other than to help us wrestle through and maybe arrive on the same page about the nature of the physicality of this activity. So here's, here's a, a couple questions. These are these awkward questions. Why is it, number one, why is it that when a child is sexually abused, that when later on as they're an adult and they're like connecting the dots and they're understanding what happened to them, why is it so difficult for them to shake that off? Why don't we just say, hey, it's just a physical thing, right? Like, just, just get over it. Why is it such a deep thing? Why can't they just shake it off and say, you know, someone, some dirty old person just touched me inappropriately? Some people may say, well, you know, maybe it's because the child was betrayed by an authority figure and they put their trust in them. But you know what? Like, every, every adult will eventually not uphold some promise they've made to a child at some point in time. Like every good parent isn't going to always, you know, keep all of their promises. We know that this is actually a lot deeper than that issue. Because if sex was just physical, you know what? Just shake it off. It was just a physical thing. It's not that big of a deal. Question number two. Why is it that rape is so much more devastating to a woman than simply being beat up? Why is it a woman will report being beat up, but they might keep that that issue of rape a secret for the rest of their life and not tell anybody about it? If it's just a physical thing, then it's just like like being beat up, right? If it's just a physical thing. But it's not that way. It's not just a physical thing. It's way more than that. That's why we have penalties for rape are different than the penalties for battery. Because our culture intuitively knows that it's not just physical. Why is it that men that have the deepest sexual issues usually have uninvolved or missing fathers? Like when I talk with with men and they have these problems and you, you unpack it, there's usually this family of origin issue that they have deep in their life that they have to unpack, something that happened a long time ago. Why is that? It's because sex, sex, our sexuality isn't just physical. It's touched and it's rooted in this deepest part of who we are. And if we treat it like it's just physical, we hurt ourselves at the deepest level imaginable. Why is it people's greatest regrets are these sexual mistakes that they make? That whenever I meet someone and they say, Pastor Scott, I just need, to, I need counsel, I need to talk with you about something I've never told anyone before. It's almost always some sort of sexual mistake or or, or something that happened in the past. They're never saying, hey, I just got to talk with you. You know, I was at the mall and I backed up and I hit someone else's car and I failed to leave a note and I just feel kind of bad about that. It's usually something tied to a sexual history mistake because it's not, it's not just physical. 
And we know this. We know this. It's so much more than that. It's more than a, a game of soccer. It's more than a game of ping pong. It touches us at the deepest level. And because it touches us at the deepest level like this, because you know what? That's the way that God designed it to be. It's this powerful bonding thing. And because of that, the consequences surrounding sexual sin are so much greater so that, so that God would have so much to say about this. And then Moses would have a ton to say about this. And Jesus would have a ton to say about this. And the apostle Paul would have a lot to say about about this as well. That's why the Apostle Paul, because it has so much power in our lives, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee, flee from sexual immorality. He says, don't try to manage it, don't try to fight it, flee from it. Elsewhere in the New Testament, James would say, resist the devil, but here Paul says, flee from it. Flee from it. And he would, he would define sexual immorality a chapter earlier as being uh, having sex outside of marriage, outside of a covenant marriage. He says, flee from sexual immorality all other sins a person commits. Every other category of sin that people commit, and this is unbelievable. He's about to tell us what we just discovered in our, our, the questions that we just asked. He's about to tell us from 2,000 years ago what we intuitively know about this subject and that's this that sexual sin is unlike any other sin not because God hates it more not because God will judge you more harshly not because God's going to send you to hell or call you like a lesser person because of that it's unlike any other sin because of how it affects the offender and because of how it eventually affects the offended he says all other sins are committed outside the body but whoever sins sexually, it's a category unto itself, sins against their own body. Here's what he's saying, and, and here's what we would expect from a loving, heavenly Father who wants good for us, who created sexuality to be this deep expression of intimacy. He would say this, when you sin sexually, you're hurting yourself. And not only are you hurting yourself, you're hurting yourself at the deepest level imaginable and sometimes it will follow you for the rest of your life it's this powerful yet this fragile thing that can be so extraordinarily dynamic and bonding within marriage and if you break the rules with this it has the power to turn your life upside down and there's no other category like this sin paul would say he goes on to say this he says don't you know no, they didn't know. That's why he said that. Don't you know that your bodies are temple, temples of the Holy Spirit? No, I didn't know that my body was a temple of the Holy Spirit. I thought like God was in heaven. He's spiritual and I'm physical. So you know what? I'll come to church and I'll ask forgiveness for what I do. And then I'll just go on the next day and I'm just going to do my, my own bodily kind of thing. I'm going to carry on in my own sort of way. Paul would say, no, 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 no. If you're a Christian, there's this doctrine that says that we are actually inhabited by the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. He said, you're not your own. Your body's not your body, he said. You, if you're a Christian, you, all of you belongs to God because you were bought with a price. Right? And, and the cost 
of something that you buy determines the value of what it is. And God would look at you and he would say, you are bought at a price. Do you know the cost that I paid for you? The cost was the death of my son that I love. I gave up being around him anymore. I sent him. He died a death that he did not deserve to die for you. That's how much you are worth to me. Don't take this thing that is of value and treat it like it's not valuable. Because you were bought with a price. And then he hits his conclusion and his application. He says, therefore, therefore, honor God with your bodies. How do we, how do we apply that? How do, we, would, we would seek you know, to say, hey, how do I, as a 40-year-old man living in this context, how do I, as a student in high school, how do I, as a, as a new single mom going through this challenging divorce situation that no one seems to understand right now, how am I best going to honor God with my body? That's how we do, that's how we apply this. How do I honor God with my sexual behavior specifically? Now, the thing is, this, this concept of like, God, I'm going to honor you with my body, this goes up against some, some major cultural beliefs, doesn't it? Because in our culture, here's what people would say. They'd say, well, that's good for you, because like you're doing your church thing, that's good for you, but I'm going to do my thing because it's just an issue of preference, Right? My preference is my preference. Your preference is your preference. But let me just throw something out for you to think about. That it's not an issue of your preference because the consequences and the outcomes are predictable. If it was an issue of preference, like, hey, you like this kind of art and I like this kind of art, you like that kind of music and I like this kind of music, the outcomes are, there's no predictable outcome in the middle of all of that. I don't think it's an issue of preference. I think it's an issue more like nutrition. So you might prefer to eat fatty foods and starches and sugars, but if you do, there's a predictable outcome to that. We know what's going to happen at the end of that. But you might, another person might prefer to eat fruits and vegetables, and there's a predictable outcome to that as well. You might prefer one or the other, but there's an outcome because that's how it's designed to be. From the beginning, God said, this is going to be powerful. It's going to bond you together. And when you break those rules, when you bond with someone else, it's going to have the potential to destroy your relationships and to destroy you. Because that's how God designed it. And that's why the consequences are there if we don't pay attention to them. Now, last week, we talked at length about the power that sexual sin can have and about the, the outcomes and the consequences about lust and pornography, and it's devastating, both on those people who are affected and those that it affects, and I, I hope that our outcome from that last week was to first have compassion on people that would be in that place, and second, that we would be a community that seeks to restore people who are dealing with these kinds of, of issues. Because it's so devastating, that's why Paul says, I want you to flee from it. Don't flirt with it. Don't contend with it. Don't try to manage it, but flee from it. About 10 years ago, I went to a men's retreat in Western Maryland with about 100 guys. And so because we're men and we do stupid stuff like this, the leader said, hey, I want you to go find the biggest log that you and your four friends can carry. And so we all grabbed the biggest logs we could carry and we created this massive bonfire. I mean, the size of these two sets of seating right here. And so we lit this thing up and we were having a good old time and the person spoke and we're all in our camp chairs and the fire starts dying down. So this massive campfire was now down to maybe 
two, three feet high. That's all that, that it was. And we were all just in our camp chairs, you know, a bunch of 40 and 50-year-old men, like just nodding off, getting ready to fall asleep, and it's getting quiet and lazy and slow. And all of a sudden, this one guy gets up, and he walks up to the campfire and pulls out of his backpack three Roman candles and tosses them in the middle of the fire. You've never seen overweight 40-year-old men move so quickly, and it was hilarious. They start shooting out underneath all the camp chairs. Everyone starts darting. It's like hitting tents. It's like, it, 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 yeah, it got very intense, all right? All right, I'll be here all night. It was, it, was, it was something to behold. And you know who ran the quickest? The people closest to the fire, right? Because when you're closest to the danger, you don't say, I'm going to manage this. I'm not going to like put a shield up. I am just going to flee from this. I am going to run from it. And I want to submit to you three really practical ways that you can run and that you can flee from sexual sin in your life. And in truth, in truth, these are three things that can be true for any sin that besetting you. Anything that's conquering you, uh, depression, mental health ba- uh, battles, substance abuse battles that you might be having. This is how we can flee from sexual sin. And I'm just going to warn you that these are going to sound pretty radical. They are radical because the consequences to this are so radical as well. That's why we flee from it. And these are uh, three principles that we're going to pull out of Scripture, out of different passages. And these are three principles that are like three legs to a stool. When you have them all there, it's going to work wonderful. Pull one of those legs out and it's going to fall. Here's the first one. The first one is this, radical amputation. Radical amputation. It's this idea that there's something in my life, it's tripping me up. It's this substance, it's this activity, it's this person, it's this phone call, it's this website, and I'm going to do something radical to amputate it, right? I'm going to cut it off. This is what Jesus had to say in in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. After he said, anyone who who looks lustfully at someone commits adultery in their heart. This is what he says. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. When Jesus' audience heard that, that was like radical to them. What are you talking about? He's like, we, we receive that the same kind of way. That's not just sin management. It's sin eradication. In other words, your sin should so sear your soul that you're saying, I would do anything to get out of this. And I've counseled lots of men in the last 15 years of ministry, and they would come up and they say, I need help. I know God helped you conquer this in your life. I need help as well. And I said, well, you've got to be ready to do anything. When you're ready to do anything, then you're ready to get victory from this thing. We've got to be willing to do whatever it takes. For someone that's bound by pornography, it might mean this. Something radical might mean, you know what? I can't handle having an internet-connected phone in my pocket. So I'm going to take that SIM card out and I'm going to destroy my phone and I'm going to get a flip phone. And I am willing to be called a dunce for having a flip. Can you imagine opening a flip phone now? People be like, what's wrong with you, right? I'm willing to cut that off of my life because I am so seared by this. I need to have it gone. In my counseling with men on on this issue, I I don't know why, but I've just had a bunch of guys who are pilots. And, uh, And so they spend a lot of time in hotel rooms. One, one pilot would say, 
You know what I had to do? I had to call ahead to the hotel. This was back before you had the internet in your pocket, and so it was like pay-per-view TV. Like younger people, you're just going to have to ask your parents what pay-per-view TV is, right? You'd have to like pay to watch a show like on the TV, right? And so he would call ahead and ask the hotel to remove the TV. And if they wouldn't, he would show up and he would carry, and this is CRT TVs too, the big tube ones that weighed a ton, you know? He would carry it down to the lobby and put it in. And if he couldn't do that, he had a set of cable cutters. And he would rather pay the fee to repair that cable, and so he would cut them in the hotel room than to have to have that dragon of pornography on his back the whole time. For someone who's bound by romance novels, it might mean that you're going to have a burning ceremony and you delete your Audible account, but I've got a lot of money in my Audible account. You're willing to let that go in order to cut that out of your life, and you're going you're to do something radical to amputate that. And you might say, oh, come on, let's be reasonable. I want to be strong enough to be at a place where I can go in the hotel room and not even be tempted in the first place. You are deceiving yourself, and that what, that's what gets people in the mess in the first place. I'm strong enough to handle the temptation with this person, with this image, with this thing, with this substance. No, you've got to have radical amputation. Besides, we know this, we know this, that giving up something now is not a sacrifice. It's an investment in our future. When we choose to give up something now because it's going to make our life better in the future, that's not a sacrifice. That's actually an investment. So I will gladly let go of having this cable service in my home if it means I'm not going to be bound by this and it's not going to trip up my children. Number two, number two, so radical amputation. Number two, radical accountability, radical accountability. Proverbs 27 says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. We need relationships where we can bring people into these kinds of struggles in our lives. James chapter 5 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much, this King James Version would have said. Radical accountability is this. It's not compatibility. It's not finding someone else that struggles with the same problem that you have. It's finding a trusted spiritual friend that you can say, I need your help. I need you to speak into my life. I want you to help me find the blind spots. I don't want this to have victory over me anymore. It requires humbling yourself. And, and, and I wouldn't submit to you that the wise thing to do is to stand up in the middle of life group or in the middle of this space, especially if you have a significant relationship. I would say you need to find a trusted spiritual friend that can help you navigate and walk through these kinds of challenges. You're inviting them to speak into your life, whatever it may be. Here's what happens when you, when you do this. You're bringing someone into it and you start shedding light into a dark place. Ephesians 5 says this. It says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Here's what I know about those kinds of secret sins in my life. That when, I, when I was bound by those, the lights would always be off. When I want to eat the Oreos, I make sure no one's around. I don't want people to see it. It's just something about those things that tend to be in darkness, and you know what I'm talking about. When you don't want anyone else to see, the lights are literally off. That's why Ephesians talks about the power of literally turning the lights on this thing. And when we do that, when we bring someone else into that, that's a trusted spiritual friend, guess what happens? That sin and that secret and that darkness no longer has a grip on us in the same way says this in verse 13, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. 
The fruitless deeds of darkness lose their power when we bring someone into it. For sexual purity issues, I cannot highly enough recommend Covenant Eyes. I have been gladly throwing my money at them for the last 15 years to protect myself and my family. It is a worthy, worthy investment to help facilitate accountability with a trusted spiritual friend. Okay, so you've radically amputated, you have radical accountability, now you have this thing that you used to do, this substance you used to run to, and you've stopped. Now there's a gaping hole, and something else is going to flood into it, which is why the third stool leg is so important, and it's this principle of radical appropriation. Radical appropriation. Appropriation is filling the need of something with something else. I was recently talking with a, a brother who had given up smoking. And, he, and I said, how are you doing with that? He goes, you know what really would trip me up? He would say, it was when I got in the car. Whenever I got in the car, that was a time when I would just smoke one or two of them. He says, I, can't, I can't get out of that habit. And so he pulls out of his shirt pocket a white, small, this big, a little, like took a Bic pen and had taken every, all the guts out of it, right? It was just a sleeve, like a little pipe. And he says, you know what I do? He says, I get in the car and I pull this out of my pocket. There's nothing in it. And he showed me. I just, I just need something to fill that space of this itch that I have for this activity. When we stop something, something else has to come into its place. As I've worked with gentlemen counseling on this issue, again, one of these pilots, he said, I encouraged him that way. I said, hey, you need to have a hobby. You need to have something you do that fills that void that you used to run to. And so he goes, yeah, yeah, I know what it is. I, I've actually been researching presidents. Said, yeah, you know, nothing is as exciting as Benjamin Harrison, you know. Like, I don't even, well, he knew everything about presidents because he just spent all his time researching. Okay, if that's, if that's golf, that's fine, right? As a Christian, look, as a Christian, we fill that need, that space that's created for that, we fill that with Christ. Here's what, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, and this is another wine and drinking thing. I don't mean to hit that again. But he says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. I don't think he's making a commentary on alcohol here, and that's when a lot of teetotalers would read this. Um, like, we should never drink. That's not what he's saying, and that's not really what this is even about. I think Paul is recognizing that there's something inside each of us that wants to deal with the anxiety of our lives with different kinds of things. And he may as well have said, don't get drunk binge-watching that latest episode on Netflix. Don't get drunk on Oreos. Don't get drunk on excessive partying. Don't get drunk on all of these other things. Don't get drunk on sexuality, he would say. Don't get drunk on hobbying, but be filled with God's Spirit. But be filled with God's Spirit. Now, our lusts are going to draw us to fill that God-given desire with anything but God. But for those, for those who want to follow Christ, we would look at that and say, God, you're the greatest satisfaction I'm ever going to have. And I'm going to seek to fulfill that with your spirit. And the more I gaze at Christ, the less I'm going to gaze at this other thing. The more I feast on the goodness of who you are, the less I'm going to run to this other thing. Don't get drunk on wine but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Radical amputation, radical accountability, radical appropriation. Three steps, they're anything but simple. They're not simple. They're hard, they're really hard. Ask anyone who's gone through recovery on anything. It's hard. 
but they're powerful and they're effective. With Christ, there's freedom in the middle of all of that. It's how we can decide ahead of time how we're going to live free from sexual sin. Because it's not just physical, it's deeply personal. It's deeply interpersonal. It's profoundly spiritual. And it's how we can keep from destroying our relationships. I want to share one comment that as my, my hope is that this, that kind of restoration community can be who we are. I've just been a part of too many churches that have majored on shame and minored on grace. And I want to be the kind of church when someone says, you know, I'm struggling and it might not be a sexual sin, it might be something else. That we say, you know what, I know you're struggling through that and your mess is welcome here and we're not going to condone or high five it when you mess up. But we love you and we know that you need community to process this in and we want this to be a safe space for you. Whether it's life group or in here or one-on-one and you deal with it in coffee chops or whatever, like that we would be a faith community that lives this out and embraces those who need restoration. I want to share a quote by Paul David Tripp. He says this, and this is powerful. He says, if your community functions as a gospel community, then your humble confession of personal areas of susceptibility won't be dangerous because it will be greeted with mercy-infused understanding. You know, there are times when I step up and the enemy says, you don't, you don't want to ever tell this group of people that you had purity issues when you were first married. You want to keep that buried. This was actually written to church leaders. But I think it's powerful us for us as a church community. I want to read it again. If your community functions as a gospel community, then your humble confession of personal areas of susceptibility won't be dangerous because it will be greeted with mercy-infused understanding. And that's what we should have. Intercessory prayer, strategies for help, radical amputation, accountability, and appropriation, all fueled by confidence in the presence and the grace of the Savior. He says later, we are lovingly called out of the darkness, out from behind the trees into the open and into the light, not because we don't have things to hide, but because grace means that we no longer have to hide them. The one from whom we have hidden is now our Father, and the things we have hid have been fully atoned for. May that be true of us. May that be true of us. Let me pray, and then I want to respond with just a a song of worship, talking about the brokenness that God works out of us. God, you are good. God, you are good that you restore the brokenhearted. Those that turn to you, God, you draw near to them. I feel like my life is a constant example of that. God, I want to pray victory for those who might be bound by these kinds of things. God, I want to pray protection that these sorts of things wouldn't happen at all uh, to anyone here. But God, that we would be vigilant because we don't want to see each other hurt. We don't want to see those that we're entrusted to hurt. God, would you free those who are in bondage? The enemy wants it to stay in darkness and to have victory over these kinds of things, God. But you want it to be in appropriate light so that people can find healing and grace to help them in times of need. Jesus, we love you, we praise you, we worship you.
Thank you, God, that your grace doesn't run out on us, but that you freely, that, that there's just mercy-infused understanding. What a glorious thing. God, as we worship, would you show us these areas where maybe we need to step into radical Radical amputation, accountability, and appropriation. In Christ's name.